Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by the Alabama Ag Credit. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. That's alabamaagcredit.com. I'm Joe Baya here with my co-host Clint Flowers. And Clint, I'm excited about today's show because this is something that tends to paralyze me when I start to think about it. You know, I like the idea of providing as much forage for deer and other wildlife on my property as possible, but I want to do it in a way that is uh, responsible not only to my budget, but also responsible to the ecosystem as a whole. You know, what's going on in in my area and, and what's going to be right for my area, whether that's, you know, the climate or taking into consideration native vegetation, taking into consideration how I hunt and those kind of things. And so today we're really going to be talking about choosing the best trees for for deer, but also for deer hunting. If you guys engaged in other than planting uh, crop trees like, you know, pines and, and things of that nature, have you guys planted some fruit trees or some hard mass trees on your properties? Yeah, uh, we've tried a few through the years. We've had apples and pears and peaches and saltees. You know, we've tried a lot of them and, and, you know, some make it, some don't. Some of those are operator error or they're hit hard by the deer when they're young and just never make it up. But the ones that have, you know, we've uh, really seen some benefit from, but there's a lot of options out there. It can get confusing. Real quick, real quick. Well, today we're going to try to wade through all those options and help you figure out what's going to be best for your place. And to do that, we've got Ian Wallace. Ian is a CEO at Chestnut Hill outdoors out of Alachua, Florida. Not too far from me. Ian, how's it going today, man? Welcome to Huntland. Hey there. What's going on, Joe? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the invite. It's good to to get to talk a little bit about fruit trees and, you know, just just mass trees in general. Food plot trees are, I think, a really crucial and essential part of building um, your local ecosystem. And it's a part that's missed out on, I, I think, a lot in the hunting world. So, yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to plant in food plots. And it seems like the tree aspect of it gets overlooked a lot when it comes to forage, just like, you know, prescribed fire seems to as well. We talk about that a lot on here, but uh, tell us a little bit about Chestnut Hill Outdoors and, and what everything you guys do there. Yeah, so we are really about a 40-year-old business. My mom and dad founded Chestnut Hill Nursery, uh, and we operate as Chestnut Hill Outdoors so people can recognize us, but our nursery here in Alachua is called Chestnut Hill Nursery. We founded the nursery on the Dunstan Chestnut, which was an American-Chinese hybrid that was hybridized by my great-grandfather, and my dad started to plant those, and, and that's how we kind of got off the ground. But, you know, over the years, we have turned into a full... Uh, nursery with fruit, flowering, landscaping, you name it, we've probably done it. And, you know, one of the things that I think we really specialized on was 35 years ago, if you go to Lowe's and Home Depot at the time to go get fruit trees, you may end up buying a tree there that is never going to fruit in your area. So Lowe's and Home Depot were supplying varieties that are meant to grow in Tennessee and fruit in Tennessee, but you're buying those varieties in Florida and they weren't cognizant of buying the correct variety for your area. And those trees just will never fruit. They may grow, but they'll never fruit. And that's based on chilling hours and some other stuff. And we took it upon ourselves to supply people with trees that are actually going to fruit and produce on their property in the Southeast uh, United States. And, and so that's really how we, I think, got off the ground after the chestnut. And we've been doing that ever since. And so I, I think that's what we do best is we make sure to educate our customer on how to plant and what to plant to be successful at actually producing fruit on their property, so. Yeah, I mean, that's super important. 
Clint and I selling land. We work a lot of times with folks who are buying their first piece of land and they ask us a lot of questions and we tend to take those questions and bring them on, you know, do a show about it, try to cover it. I mean, everything from what size tractor do they need down to, Hey man, what are, what are the best fruit trees I could plant? Whether sometimes it's for their own consumption or sometimes it's for the deer or the other wildlife on their property. You pretty much just answered that question. The best one is the one that's going to produce fruit. It sounds like, but if we're talking about varieties, what are some of your favorite fruit trees for deer? And I mean, when I'm thinking deer, I'm thinking, for their nutrition, number number one, but also in, as an attractant, you know, something that they're going to flock to at certain times of the hunting season to give us a better chance of getting them. Right. Yeah. So, you know, fruit trees and hard mass trees, uh, specifically the chestnut and acorns are, I, I think they're all important. Um, I think that just mast in general from trees is a really important thing because They provide a nutrient set that's different than your your herbaceous food plot. They're higher in carbohydrate, um, you know, they're higher in fats in your your harder mast, and uh, they fruit at all kinds of different times of year, and they are what deer have been eating forever to make sure that they can receive the nutrients they need at those certain times of year. It's just the biological clock that uh, the deer follows. So having the full set is really important to have. But, you know, specifically with fruit, you know, I'll touch on first is, you know, what I like to think about with fruit and all mass sources in general is, you know, what are the native trees that are in your area? What kind of native fruit can you walk out onto the back 40 and find just naturally growing around your localized area? And typically those native trees are what deer are going to be attracted to the most. And, you know, with higher human populations and more development and pushing deer into, you know, pockets of land, we have really deteriorated the natural mast sources, I think all across the world, but, uh, you know, specifically here in the Eastern US. And so I think it's important to be reforesting your area with these fruit trees that would have been there in abundance possibly years ago. And, um, you know, just some specific ones that come off the top of my head, I can walk into my backyard here and find persimmon, there's mulberry, there's crab apple here and there, plums are just some that come to mind off the bat. And, you know, those, you know, this is the way that I think about it. When I put meat on the grill, I, or let's say I'm just going through a neighborhood and I'm smelling meat grilling, my mouth starts to salivate and I start to become hungry because I'm adapted to be attracted to that smell because humans have been doing it for thousands of years. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same is, is, is said for deer walking through the forest, they're going to sense the native trees probably more than anything else. And they're going to sniff that out and go, Hmm, I I want some of that, you know? Right. Yeah. And so that, that, that's kind of what I like to think about as we start, you know, thinking through what is the best. Um, yeah. Well, and I area. like that response because I mean, you sit down and you want to do a podcast, what people often are looking for, they're like, you know, okay, Ian, but just, just tell me what I need, you know? And, and so the answer is it depends. Uh, it depends on where you are. If you're in Alachua, Florida, you're going to probably need something different than you're, if you're in the Appalachian mountains of Tennessee and folks that are listening to this show come from all over the country. So it's not like, we can say, hey, this is the tree to plant. That being said, I, I like that first initial question is, what what's native to my area? How can I, instead of trying to go against nature, how can I supplement what should be there? Thinking about that, though, are there any trees that you think are somewhat universal, like in the fruit tree department? You know, if we said, hey, look, this one works pretty good for most of the region, say east of the Mississippi or something like that. Are there some uh, some trees that are ubiquitous across the landscape? 
Yes, the answer to that is yes. And fortunately, most of the Eastern United States has a pretty homogenous landscape. I mean, if you go from North Florida to New York, over to Minnesota, Southern Minnesota and South to, to Texas before it starts to get dry when you go too far out West. I mean, that whole area is pretty much the same landscape, save the winter temperatures. Um, but a lot, of the, a lot of the same stuff grows in that environment. So that, that's a fortunate thing for, for us. And we have a lot of those generalized species. So, so to go into some of those specific species, one, American persimmon. American persimmon is very common in the wild all over the Eastern United States. Two, pear. I took a trip up to Georgia actually just a, a couple of months ago, a month or so ago when it was just starting to touch into spring. And on my drive, I couldn't help but notice pear flowers everywhere. It was the first thing to pop, the first bit of color to kind of be coming out in the, in the landscape. And, and there's pear everywhere. It was super noticeable to me. Pear, crab apple, southern crab apple is hugely available all over the southeastern United States. Mulberry, mulberry grows pretty naturally in our area. We have a few volunteer mulberry trees, I think, on the farm. And then plum, plum, Chickasaw plum, American plum. And then you start to go into maybe some shrubs. So grapes, blueberries, blackberries um, are all really, a, a, all, they, you find them grown all over the place. In fact, I, I bet you could find some in your local area. And so what we have done is we have selected all of the selection that we have on uh, and that we provide are generally able to be planted in that whole eastern United States zone that I highlighted. So from the south, Florida, up to New York, west to Minnesota, Minnesota, and then south to Texas, that big square is generally where most of our trees are, are able to be shipped and grown pretty well. And save there are some specifics, but you know, something that we do is if you call and you say, Hey, I want to get a, I want to get a mulberry and you're calling from Southern Michigan or, or, or Ohio, we'll probably tell you, Hey, you can't plant that there, but maybe instead you could do an American plum because it's a little bit more adapted to that Northern climate. I'm glad you brought up blackberries because I, I was out doing a little turkey hunting last week and took my wife and my three-year-old out to do a little scouting the night before. Man, there was blackberries were just everywhere, uh, right around one of our gates. And we sat there and picked blackberries for a while and came home and my wife made a banana blackberry bread that was delicious. And I knew of a bramble on a separate part of the property that we've picked from in years past, like into June. And I just thought, man, you know, here we are April and there's blackberries everywhere right here by the gate. Well, let's go up there and look at that other bramble. And so we go up there and we look at the other one and not a single fruit. I mean, it's all flowers. Uh, it's not ready yet. And that really brought to my mind a question I wanted to ask you today, which is, you know, thinking about deer and, and deer hunting in Alabama, uh, for example, you've got deer season from October all the way to February in Florida you know, you've got a season somewhere from August all the way to March in, in North part of the state. So what I am thinking about as a hunter is, well, I want to put some plants out there that produce fruit at different times of the season. You know, I don't want all my fruit to be hitting the ground right at the very beginning of uh, bow season, say, uh, and then have no fruit. So talk about that a little bit, like when it comes to maybe staggering your plantings based on when, when you want that fruit to drop, is that, is that a strategy hunters can use? And is that something that y'all look at as well and say, Hey, you know, this is going to drop in the early fall or the late summer and, and on, you know, throughout the season. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Joe. And, and I, I have, I have a simple answer 
to it. And then, and then I have some other thoughts on that, that I, I think capture the spirit of that question in a, in a little bit more broad scale. So first off, yes, we sell within certain products. We will sell, there's, there's only a few actually, there's really persimmon and pear that we have selected varieties that drop early and drop late, right? In those varieties, I'll use persimmon as an example. We have our Deer Candy Persimmon Collection, which is a group of three varieties which drop early, meaning they drop in the South sometime around September. They just fruit naturally. It's the, the variety just fruits naturally around that time and drops around September, October, maybe a little bit later. This, the other variety is a late dropping variety, which is a deer magnet persimmon, which drops later and is stays on the tree sometimes through October into November and maybe even later. Another thing that I've noticed actually is American persimmon seedlings, which I can talk a little bit about the difference between our grafted varieties and a seedling variety, because that's also a little bit of confusing nature for some of our customers. But a seedling persimmon has genetic variation and is just going to drop where, whenever it is going to drop, just depending on its genetics, right? And that seedling persimmon I'll see on the tree sometimes into December, which is what we're preferring. You know, as, as a hunter, you want to make sure that there's food on your property late into the season so that you can keep having those deer coming to feed and you can set your stand and, and watch them and see, you know, kind of what their, what their schedule is like. So, so there are varieties that we sell that are early and late drop. And we've done our best to select varieties that are late dropping varieties that go further into the hunting season. And that is something we're continuing to look for all the time. I'll mention another one real quick. We have Dr. Deer Pear and Thanksgiving Pear that, again, hold on until Thanksgiving or later. So that is a, a really good strategy if you want to use your tree plot, your tree food plot as, I hate to say it, but like a bait, you know, to keep the deer coming. I don't right, hate to say okay. it at all. That's, that's, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, right. I love to see those deer eating and, and growing and, and getting bigger and being nourished by the land. But at the end of the day, man, I'm a hunter. So no, yeah, uh, we're no trying shame to get in my game. Bring them in. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that. And, and I, you know, that, that is a strategy we can take with trees and selecting certain varieties that are late dropping varieties. But the way that I like to look at it, and this is the second point I kind of wanted to make on this topic is I think what's more important personally and more encompassing of what you can do to your local landscape to create a nutritious environment for your wildlife is to plant all types of trees and herbaceous plots that are going to have food available for a wider span of the whole year. Right. Like I said earlier, that's going to create nutrition sources for deer when they are supposed to get the food at those times of year. You know, when you have food on your property and your neighbor doesn't have food on their property, the deer are going to learn that they're going to teach the fawn that and they're going to keep coming back to your property over and over and over again. And they're not going to, they're not going to stray from that. Why would yeah. they, when they have everything they need? Yeah. So we actually have on our website and you can find these things if you Google a little bit, but we have a fruiting calendar, which shows just a, a calendar of when fruit drop and what types of varieties drop. So for instance, just to, to kind of name some off, you know, May, early, early spring, uh, you know, you start to have that mulberry and then, and then into the summer, you can have grapes and you have blackberry, like you're, you're seeing some of the blackberries come out real early. And then plums start to come out during the summer, even cherry in the early season. 
And then throughout the summer, you, you start to get some pear later into the summer and then persimmon. And then it really starts to go off because falls when trees are dropping all of their fruit so that it can go seed throughout the winter and you have oaks and chestnut. And so I think that it's, it's just the best strategy to have food on your property available all throughout the year. Yeah, totally agree with that. I mean, that's why we talk on here about, you know, importance of, uh, of, of spring and summer food plots. I mean, the idea is to make your property a haven for wildlife. And like you said earlier, the more they learn that food sources are there, the more comfortable they become with your property, the longer they spend on your property, which is going to equate to number one, having healthier deer and healthier wildlife. And, but two, it's going to uh, equate to better hunting when that time comes. I mean, I want those deer to stay there and not just deer. I mean, other wildlife as well. Now I like that approach. I mean, like you're saying, kind of step one is we're looking at what are the native species to the area? How can we supplement the area with, with species that are going to do well? I think that's a great approach. Step two is looking at it and saying, yeah, we want to look at, make sure we've got some varieties that produce for hunting season, but we also want to have food here 365 days a year for wildlife. That's really good. You talked about some of the fruit trees that work well in the East. What about hard mast? I mean, so, you know, we're not just talking fruit here. We're, you know, let's talk about hard mast. You mentioned the dust, Dunstan chestnut earlier. Maybe start by telling us a little bit about that variety, but also go into some of the other types of hard mass trees that, that you'd recommend that would do well on that wide scale like we talked about. Yeah, uh, hard mast is, I think, a really important part of the equation for sure. And it's going to have a lot of those carbohydrates and fats, specifically in acorns, that are crucial for deer packing on the pounds before the winter time. And I'll say the best food plot tree, hands down, is a chestnut tree oak trees only drop well here's a few things they only drop every other year sometimes every year but every other year sometimes every two or three years they have cycles of production an oak typically takes up to 20 or 30 years before they start to even produce mast they're just a slow growing species if you've ever planted oak they just they take a long time to get going. And also another huge part of it is oak. I mean, they can produce a whole lot of mast when they do, but the mast itself is high in tannins. I don't know if you've ever tried to eat an acorn as a kid. I did. <laughs> and I wasn't happy about it. They have tannic acid like crazy in it. It's just bitter, bitter, bitter. And deer have more taste buds than humans as an herbivore, they, they have more taste buds and are, are very sensitive to tannic acid and, and they will, they will choose a chestnut tree over an, an acorn any day. Well, I would so, believe that because I mean, when it comes to, if you're talking about just acorns in general, I mean, I've seen deer walk past all kinds of acorns to get to a white oak, a variety of white oaks, because those are much lower in the tannins that you're talking about. So if, if I'm hearing you correct, those chestnuts, that's one big benefit is that they're very low in tannic acid. And do they produce every year? I mean, you mentioned that early on with the oaks. Is that an annual crop off the chestnut? Yep. So the, a chestnut produces every year. They produce nuts in somewhere to three to five years, sometimes a little longer in northern states. It takes about three to five years from planting before they'll start to produce nuts. They produce heavily every year and will produce he more heavily over time as they start to mature and, and reach maturity. They have no tannins. And I mean, they're sweet to humans, raw. They're delicious um, and are, I think, almost most importantly, a very crucial part of the native environment in the eastern United States. And, you know, what this is a just a really interesting story that has for whatever reason kind of been forgotten especially by some of us in the younger generations we wouldn't know about this at all but 
the American chestnut was the primary hardwood forest in the eastern United States forever. And in the early 1900s, a chestnut blight was introduced through a port in New York. They probably brought a Chinese variety or something in. And it spread this blight throughout the chestnut forests and wiped out everything. Literally killed all of the American chestnut that there was. And it was as it was as uh, common as oak and pine. And, you know, the folk saying would be that a squirrel could jump on chestnut treetops from Georgia to New York, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it was just uh, a, a huge part of the native nut- nutrient source for deer for thousands and thousands of years. So they're naturally attracted to chestnuts more so than than oaks. That's interesting. And I was going to ask you that I was going to play devil's advocate a little bit, because like you said, the very first thing you're talking about is trying to match that, you know, match that ecosystem, match the native vegetation. And I mean, I can't, I don't know that I can think of running across a chestnut tree in, in, in the woods. I mean, I probably have and didn't know it, but that's super interesting. And I'd never heard of that. So you said that was around the turn of the century? Yep. In the early 1900s. Wow. And you know, there, there, it was, there were trees that were just massive, kind of, I mean, I, I wouldn't compare it quite to the size of the red oaks, you know, in, in California, but huge trees and giant groves. It was a source of food that uh, Native Americans survived on and cultivated for thousands of years. Um, the, set, the early settlers used it as a wood source for building and for just for food, packing in, ready, getting ready for the winter, um, you know, bread. I just it, it was a, one of the most important trees that there was, just like it still is in some places like Italy uh, and in Europe. So, yeah, it was completely wiped out. And actually, kind of interesting fact about it, the root system still exists in many of the places that it grew. So the, the, the blight only affects the above surface growth. And if you go to certain places in Carolinas, in the, you know, in the woods, there are suckers that continue to try to grow up, but they die back every year because this blight has, has a hold on them. The only thing that grows are blight resistant varieties and they are they have been working for years and years on a blight resistant american chestnut uh which has been um unsuccessful a lot and we always root for it there's actually some talk of a successful variety but there have been others that have been successful in the past too that haven't panned out uh so we always hope that that natural thing will come back but so to kind of go to you know what is kind of just a a cool part of who we are at chestnut hill is my great grand great great grandfather like i talked about earlier was a plant breeder and in the early 1950s he was sent some budwood so cuttings from an american chestnut tree that was still standing in in a in a grove you can read more about this stuff on our website, just the specific history. And he grafted that wood to some Chinese varieties and did some crossbreeding back and forth and bred what is today the Dunstan chestnut, um, which are a couple different varieties that he, he that came out of, of his breeding. That's what we sell is the Dunstan chestnut, which is a Chinese-American hybrid so it has qualities of the American chestnut and it has the blight resistance of the Chinese chestnut. And, and that's what we produce and sell in hopes to give people the chance to plant chestnuts and have that original food source for their wildlife and for themselves. Yeah, that's very cool, man. I, I like that story. And, you know, it's really interesting. <laughs> like you say, that it's just not common knowledge that it used to be such a uh, prevalent tree and it's almost non-existent now. So we were talking earlier about timing. When do chestnuts typically drop? So chestnuts typically drop here in the South. They start late August and they stop early October. 
And that's going to be different as you go north. It'll probably start to drop maybe a little bit later and drop a little bit later. It just depends on the cold. And, you know, if you're way north, your growing season is going to be shorter. So it may, it just depends. So fall, generally fall, you know, just another kind of like interesting thought that I like to think about. I think that that time period of mast is really crucially important, obviously, because deer need the nutrients going into the wintertime and they need to eat as much as possible. And it is also serendipitously the time that trees start to shed all of their growth and nuts so that they can fall into the ground and hopefully reproduce for the next year in spring. And it's this really cool relationship between the wildlife and the trees that is so crucial. So, so the way I like to think about it is, you know, that mast source is, I think, extra attractive to deer. And it's, I think, a really key part of that food nutrient strategy that you should have on your property uh, is to have that fall time fruit and nut, but specifically um, that that hard mast is is really, really important. All right, let's take a quick break. Take a minute to check out some of the businesses that keep this show free for you each week. Are you interested in building a healthy, sustainable habitat for a wide range of wildlife? If so, Brush Clearing Services and their 20 years of wildlife management experience should be your first choice. Brush Clearing Services, environmental clearing treatment selectively removes vegetation, leaving desirable trees and root structures undisturbed. Mulch left on site accelerates natural decomposition and reduces soil erosion while increasing soil moisture. Check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them 700 Six seven one eight one six nine zero, and we're back. You know, here we sit in April, and all these are great recommendations as far as what kind of trees to plant for your deer, for your wildlife, but also for your hunting. So, Ian, obviously, uh, like a lot of the things we talk about when it comes to land, it can depend on your specific situation as to what you should plant, when you should plant it. And there's no way we could go into all the variables for everybody listening to say, hey, the best tree for you is this, because it depends on where they are, what resources they have at their disposal, uh, how close they are to their property whether they can control the moisture, a whole host of factors. So I think what would be valuable here would be, let me just ask you from my perspective, and you could tell me how some someone maybe who's in my situation could plant some trees now and then maybe later this fall, but also maybe point them to some resources where, it, you know, if they want to get more information about their specific situation, they could do that. So in my situation, we have uh, about 175 acres that's about three hours from our, our primary residence. It's in the middle, you know, it's kind of South Alabama. And I'd love to go up there in the next month, you know, sometime in May, let's say, and plant some trees, take my son and, and go up and, and plant some trees that, that'll be valuable uh, for the wildlife for years to come. In my situation, I cannot control moisture. Uh, I'm going to be very dependent on on the weather for that. So what what could I do now and what could I do in the fall? Yeah, the, it's, you, you are like many of our customers, you know, having remote land that is not accessible. First, I will say that any tree can be planted in either the spring or fall and is viable, but there is one really important factor that is limiting. And so this may be a little bit better for fall water, moisture, like you said, it is so crucial. And I would say, if you want your tree to survive, you need water for your tree consistently for the first couple years after planting. And I will say that it's not a guarantee ever to have a tree survive without that. It's just not a guarantee. Um, that being said, you know, there may be some strategies you can take that can, can make it a little bit better. One, fall planting may be a better bet for somebody like that. And that is because 
if you go out in fall and plant, your tree is going to start to go dormant into the early winter months and it's shutting down its growing mechanisms and basically going into hibernation. And during those winter months, it's going to have less water requirements than it would during the summer months. And as it grows in the roots over the winter time, it will be more established for when spring comes around and it will leaf back out again and have a better chance of making it in the long term. That being said, it's still not a guarantee because a young tree is going to need water and may not be able to rely on weather alone. So those are the two variables. In spring, it's going to have a higher water requirement. You know, if you plant now, uh, let's say you're a guy who's planting on that back 40 and isn't going to be able to get there. If you plant now, it will be hotter during the summer months and you will have a, a, a harder time keeping that tree alive. Another possibility for those who are a little bit closer is to create, we just recommend like getting some pickle buckets from Lowe's or Home Depot or Walmart and filling them up, five gallon bucket, pickle bucket, uh, and you poke a hole in the bottom of that pickle bucket and it becomes a little drip device. And if you get out there and fill that up just as much as possible, you know, I would recommend watering a tree three times a week, if you can, if you can't, just as much as possible is best. Another thing that you can do is you can buy, we have them available, but you can find these wherever our tree water bags, which are basically a donut bag that sits around the the bottom of your tree and you fill that up with water and it drips just like a drip irrigation system. But The third option, which is kind of a cool option, is we have a a product called Hydratane, which is basically a root gel, I think is the the easiest way to kind of state it. It it is a gelatin-like substance that you can plant in with your tree or water on top of your tree after planting. And it is going to retain the, the moisture in the soil a little bit better. Um, So if it rains, that moisture may stay for a little bit longer. You can also just buy root gels, but hydrotain is smaller, a smaller size. It's like, um, it's just a powder basically that you sprinkle around. Um, So that's another option, kind of like last ditch option, but it's still not a 100% solution for watering. It's just so crucial. And if you can get somebody who lives close to just get out there every other week, and just do a heavy watering on those new trees. I mean, that's just the best option you can take to how, ensure. How long will you have to maintain that? You know, so if we did say you did a, a planting, I mean, one of the things that a lot of times you you kind of know, hey, we're going to be super busy during the spring. I mean, it seems to happen to me every spring. It's just like, golly, yep. you can't hardly get away to do anything. Everything's pulling at your time. In the fall, things are slowing down in a lot of cases, and you may have just more time on your hands to be able to, yeah, we can run up every two weeks and do a real heavy watering on our trees and get them going. Is this something that's, you know, a six month time frame for, for new plantings or are they going to have to extend this out? How long are you looking at? One to two years, it should have consistent watering just for, you know, I have to take the stance as a tree person to tell you the best case scenario. You know, I I can't sit, you know, it's not, it's not safe for me to say, you know what, you can probably water during the growing months. So spring through summer through fall, but then you don't have to water as much during the winter months because you may get a drought during that time and it may kill your tree. And I just don't want to give you the wrong information here because the best position you can take is to get water to your tree for the first, at least couple years if very worst case scenario, one year. That being said, like I just said, not to contradict myself, they do have less water requirements during the winter time. Yeah. That summer hot month period is really important to get water to your tree. 
Well, that's cool. I mean, you know, you sit there and you say, well, man, I don't, you know, to every, every two weeks I got to get there. But the reality is, I mean, it's going to rain. It's not like it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't rain. Uh, so you can monitor the rainfall that you're having at your property and know, okay, hey man, it's been a while since we had some rain. I better make a trip up there and, and at least get some water on the ground for my trees. So talking about right. that, once you've got them in the ground and, and you know, you got to keep them watered, what is a heavy watering? So you mentioned that, that pickle bucket or, you know, so what should somebody be prepared to do water wise? How much water should they be putting on a tree each watering uh, if they're in a period where they're not getting any precipitation? If you're watering three times a week, four mm-hmm. times a week, it's a five gallon pickle bucket, like I said, is, is sufficient. If you think about five gallons of water, you can do that if you're watering regularly. Um, if you're not watering regularly, you want to just water and saturate the soil completely down to the bottom of the roots. Um, there's no specific I, I can give you on that. I would just say a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just depend on if you got sandy soils or clay soils. And I mean, you'd have yep. to dump a five gallon bucket and pull a quick sample and see what your, what the penetration was. That makes sense. So there is some, you know, some responsibility on your part to see these trees succeed. And when you plant, uh, what I'm hearing from you is that if you plant in the fall, you're going to have maybe a better chance of seeing your tree succeed if you're not a person who can be on that property on a very regular basis, just due to the fact you're going into the winter as opposed to going into the summer. I, you know, I think that's a good assumption to take. It's not 100% because without water during the winter months, you can still get a, a dry spell, but that's, the safest thing that I could say, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, so we talked about uh, all the different varieties of hard and soft mass that are out there. And, and like you said, I mean, matching that to what's naturally there is going to give you the best results. Let's talk about grouping trees. If we think about from a hunting perspective, like I go back to what we were talking about earlier in the show of, I'd really like to have mast that's dropping as early in the hunting season as possible and into as late into the hunting season as possible. And I'd like to group those trees in an area that I like to hunt so that it, it is an attractant. Is there anything to think about when it comes to grouping these, these trees and shrubs? Not necessarily from a, a drop perspective, but do some varieties do better? Do they complement each other or do you not want to get you know, two varieties close to each other. And then maybe talk a little bit about like spacing and things like that. You know, how far apart you want to have trees from, from other trees so that they are uh, getting what they need and reducing the competition that they're having to contend with. Yeah. So there's not much you have to worry about when it comes to planting certain varieties close to each other. Nothing's going to affect the other tree strongly. Unless a a tree gets a disease, then you may want to cut it out. Depends on what that disease is. One example of, the only example I can think of off the bat is red cedars, for instance, for cover, actually hold rust uh, that can get onto apple trees. So that's maybe one specific, but for the most part, trees can grow next to each other, no problem. I'd say the biggest thing to think about when grouping trees is pollination. Pollination and pollinators to the specific variety that you're planting, right? So most trees will be pollinating itself. It's, yeah, all trees pollinate its own variety. Actually, I won't even say that. That's not totally specifically true because certain oaks can pollinate others and chestnuts can pollinate each other. Um, So the most important thing is pollination. So first I'll talk a little bit about a chestnut tree, just as an example, a chestnut tree needs at least one other chestnut to be able to pollinate. However, if you plant a couple more chestnuts, you're going to have even better pollination. And we have all of the 
spacing and pollination requirements on each product on our website so that you know how close should I plant this group of trees to each other and how many should I plant to ensure that I get production. You know, typically we recommend for fruit trees anywhere to between 20 to 40 feet spacing and chestnut oak maybe a little further 30 to 50 60 feet. One kind of rule of thumb would be you should not plant a tree a hundred feet or further from its pollination partner. Otherwise the bees and the birds just aren't going to get to each other and it's probably not going to produce fruit or nuts. So another thing to think about with that is, and this isn't always totally true, but it is to some degree, the more you plant together, the more of, of the same variety you plant together, the more pollination is going to occur. So if you have two chestnuts sitting next to each other, as they grow and mature, they will have a couple flowers start to grow. And then the next year, a couple more flowers will start to grow and they'll start to pollinate each other. Well, if you had three, you're going to have another whole chestnut with flowers that are going to start to grow. And if you had a fourth or a fifth or a sixth, you have more flowers producing more pollen that's going to create more pollination for nut production and mass production. Um, so it is effective to plant more of the same variety in one group to get more production over time. So that that's one idea. Uh, just pollination is really important. Another thing I like to think about that I think is crucially important, something that we look past a lot, tree species that produce a lot of flowers and attract pollinator species of bugs, insects, birds that will create a more healthy pollinating environment on your property. So for instance, a Southern Catalpa is one of our pollinator plants that we sell, but they have heightened times of flowering that will attract more bees, more insects, and that will in turn just increase the amount of pollination that's happening on your property. So pollination is just super important and make sure to research your tree and its pollinating requirements before you plant because you don't want to just plant one and, and never get any mast from it. So I know that's a little bit off on a different tangent of what you originally asked. No, I mean, but I think it's, it's just important. I think, well, it, like you said, it's important. Sometimes we ask questions based on our own internal thoughts and we don't realize what the actual correct answer is. And what I'm hearing you say is that there is no wrong answer as opposed to how you want to group your trees. And, you know, you can look at when they drop very easily and say, okay, I want something that's dropping in September and I want something that's dropping in December, if possible. It's going to be pretty easy to pick out what varieties will do that. But that's something that I hadn't even thought about, which is those pollinating pairs and thinking about just pollinating plants more so for your property. It's all interwoven. I mean, all this stuff's interwoven. And like we said in the beginning, a person could look at their unique situation and come up with their own conclusion on what they should do. But you've done a really good job of giving them some foundational principles, which is look at the the local landscape, see what's going to produce best there. You know, think about having something there 365 days a year. Make sure you look at your situation of time requirements and moisture requirements and what you can do and what you can't do. But also in, in the, your last part there about looking at the pollinators, man, I think that all this stuff is super interesting, but it requires a little more research on somebody's own behalf. So if somebody wants to get up with you guys, I think a phone call to you guys to talk about their situation, maybe what they want to do, or check out your website and all the different varieties of plants you have there, looking at those timelines for planting, those calendars, those fruiting calendars like you were talking about, where can they go, Ian, and uh, to get more information? Yeah, you, guys, you can call us. At any time, we will plant doctor you and give you as much education as we can. You know, we, we've kind of become a call center over the years. 
and and answering uh, people's questions about how to how to make sure that they're successful planting trees. So so give us a call. Um, you can also visit our website. On the website, there's a learning center, and you can dig into that learning center and learn more about the chestnut and history. You can also learn more about how to plant and grow. You know, we didn't even get into tree protection and, uh, you know, frost protection and different types of soils, as you lightly touched on at one point. There's there's a lot of stuff that we have on our learning center that, that, that can help you learn more about these specifics. Yeah, we have, we have an awesome online ordering system on our website. We ship during two major seasons right now in spring, which is actually just now coming to a close on our website but you can still place an order for fall and we will be ship we will be closing shipping in in later may and we'll be restarting that back up in august that being said we still have a lot of trees going out to walmart all across the, the eastern united states we'll also be going to rural king and then co-op feed dealers in new york and pennsylvania areas you can go to our store locator on the website, which has a map that's hooked into Google Maps and you can search your location and see all of the stores that we're in and what varieties will be shipping and when it's going to be showing up at its store uh, on that store locator on the website. And it also has PDFs of, of all that information too, if you wanna check that out. Awesome. Well, Ian, thanks again for joining us, man. It's been, uh, it's been enlightening. And uh, next time we've got a tree question, I know who to call, man. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, it was great being on. Thanks for having me out. Well, folks, that is going to wrap it up this week. And we want to make it easy for you guys to listen as soon as our new shows are ready. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you, all you have to do is text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, the word hunting, that's with a G. And I know I know some of you Alabama guys were like, hunting? Like, no G? No, it's with a G to 773-770-4377 to join our email list. And as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps us keep the show going. Hope you guys stay safe out there. We will talk to you next week. This week's Hunt and Land podcast has been brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. Check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. And also SunSouth. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth for quality John Deere equipment you've been dreaming of or visit sunsouth.com. SunSouth for those that do. And also Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by the Alabama Ag Credit. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, They can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baia and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land, and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also buy Great Days Outdoors magazine. Are you looking for that one-of-a-kind Father's Day or Mother's Day gift? If so, head on over to greatdaysoutdoors.com and check out the best gifts for outdoorsmen 2021. We've curated a bunch of unique ideas to help you find that awesome gift for the outdoorsman on your list. Just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash best gifts for outdoorsmen to check it out.